reading for tonight is from Isaiah chapter 40, and you can find that on page 581 of the Pew Bibles. Comfort. O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The second reading comes from Mark, which you can find on page 812, uh, beginning at verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the, out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of, Gal of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. So... And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And the final reading comes from John uh, chapter 16, beginning at verse 7, which you can find on page 878. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I wonder if you've ever felt like you're lost in the wilderness. I asked this question this morning and someone popped up from the congregation. I've literally been lost in the wilderness before. Like, I mean, can you imagine what that's like? I've, I've never been actually lost in the wilderness, but hot without any water, thirsty, aching, lost, confused about which directions, which, where to go. I wonder if you ever felt like you're lost in the wilderness. Could be perhaps that you have some kind of experience of illness, whether it's physical or mental. It could be some grief or loss, perhaps an experience of abandonment. 
It could be uh, an experience perhaps of, of unemployment or underemployment and not kind of being able to see what your purpose and your place in the world is. Perhaps just a prolonged uh, sense of dissatisfaction with the way that your life is. I wonder if you ever felt like you're lost in the wilderness. You might be lost, alone, thirsty, confused. Now, God's people Israel had plenty of wilderness experiences in the Old Testament, both literally and metaphorically. Now, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years between God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and entering the promised land. Then they were kicked out of the promised land by foreign armies. And eventually when they returned, they still had to live there under foreign occupation, kind of like being in the wilderness, even in your own land. What are we to do with our wilderness experiences? What does God say to his people when they're feeling lost, when they're wandering around hungry and thirsty, lonely, confused? Well, God sent his prophet Isaiah to speak to his people Israel in just such a situation, particularly his people in exile, lost in the wilderness of not being in their own land, of being disconnected from all the promises of God. We read God speaking through Isaiah in chapter 40 just before. What is it that he says to people lost in the wilderness, confused, alone? He says, comfort, oh comfort my people. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. When God's people are lost and lonely and hungry and thirsty and confused, God says, comfort is coming. And how does it come? In what form does this comfort come? He says, I'm coming. The glory of the Lord is is going to be revealed. I am going to come and be with you and near you, and among you, and close to you. I'm bringing life to you in the desert. I'm coming to find you in the wilderness so that I can bring you home. Today we start a new series, as we've said, four weeks looking at the Holy Spirit. We've called the series Life Giver, because that's the way the church have for centuries summarized who the Spirit is and what he does according to the Scriptures. In the words of the Nicene Creed that we declare together when we share in the Lord's Supper particularly, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Now, the Spirit is throughout the Scriptures the powerful life giver. He's the breath of God by whom God speaks creation into existence. He's the one by whom God speaks his words through the prophets. He's the one who sustains his people in body and soul, breathing life into creation. He is, as you'll hear again and again over these next four weeks, the life-giving presence of God. God promises to his people in the wilderness that comfort is coming and that it's coming in him, that he's going to draw near to them. And so if you want life in the desert, if you're in the wilderness and you want to find your way home, if you want to know and to experience God in person drawing near to you in comfort, then what you need is God's spirit. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, of course, we're talking about God himself. And because God is much, much bigger than you are, true fact, just making sure, yes, you get that, God is bigger than you are, more complicated, more beautiful, more mighty, just you can't actually get your head around him fully, right? God is much, much bigger than you are. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit, this is the God we're talking about, the one true and living God. So there's no way in the next four weeks we're going to be able to say everything about the Holy Spirit. There's no way we can answer every question you might have. There's no way we're actually even going to ask all of the questions that are worth asking, let alone trying to answer them all. So you may well have more questions by the end of this series about the Holy Spirit than you do now. That's okay. 
I want to put that uh, out there right at the start of this series. You're going to have questions. Ask them is the thing, right? We've talked in the last few weeks as we looked at Jesus' parables in Matthew about really wrestling with Jesus, about trying to work hard to understand what he says, not just going, ah, I don't get it, move on, but going, what is this all about? If you have questions about the Holy Spirit in the next few weeks, ask them. Ask each other, ask myself and Andrew and Angus, uh, ask uh, your fellowship group leaders, kick them around and try and work out what is going on. Write them down perhaps uh, because in a few weeks uh, later on in this series we'll have a question time in the service as well and you might have things not only from that week of the series but also across the series that you want to ask at that moment. We're not going to be able to say everything but what what we do want to do is to know the answers to the two most basic questions, right? Who is the Holy Spirit and what is it that he does? And so today we're going to answer exactly those two questions. We're going to start pretty broad. Really, all we're going to do tonight is just put some stakes in the ground to help guide us as we get deeper and more specific in the coming weeks. Those two questions are going to be our guide tonight. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? As we begin to answer those questions, we're going to see how the Spirit figures in God's work to bring comfort to his people in the wilderness. Uh, Now, spoiler alert, not only for tonight's sermon, but for the whole series, actually. Uh, It's not really going to be that surprising for you, I'm sure. Um, Like everything in the Christian life, it turns out the Holy Spirit, in the end, is all about Jesus. And so we're going to learn three things tonight as we put some basic stakes in the ground for this series. Uh, Firstly, that the Spirit gives life to the Son. Secondly, that the Spirit glorifies the Son. And thirdly, that the Spirit comforts the friends of the Son. And we're going to dig into each of those three things in turn. Now, firstly, the Spirit gives life to the sun. Uh, In the early 17th century, the astronomer Galileo Galilei uh, peered through a telescope that was a lot like this one. This is a replica of Galileo's telescope. What he saw when he looked through that telescope uh, was uh, something that changed the way that we see the universe. He looked through that telescope, he saw things that no one had ever seen before. He saw the Milky Way galaxy. He saw moons orbiting Jupiter. He saw shadows on the planet Venus that completely changed our minds about how actually the heavenly bodies move and relate to each other. What Galileo saw through that telescope forced us to change our conception of how the universe is constructed. The sun, not the earth, was the centre of the solar system. We're not in the middle in the way that we had imagined. What Galileo saw through that telescope gave us a brand new perspective on reality. It opened us up to reality in a new way. Well, a new perspective on reality in a similar kind of way is exactly what we're given at Jesus' baptism, which we read about tonight in Mark 1. And Mark sets the scene for his story by quoting from Isaiah 40, from that beautiful promise of comfort from God. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness promised by Isaiah turns out to be John the Baptist who comes from the wilderness to announce that another who is even greater is coming after him, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the comfort that's coming in the person of the Lord, it's about to arrive. The Lord is here. And how does that comforting presence of the Lord appear? Have a read with me from Mark 1 verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. 
Do you notice the uh, dramatic language uh, that, uh, that uh, Mark uses to describe this scene here? The heavens, he says, were torn apart. Uh, it's a, a word, actually, a Greek word from which we get the, the English word schism, to tear something. What happened at that moment was that a different perspective was opened up. The heavens being torn apart is trying to get out a new way of seeing reality. A heavenly perspective was brought in as the sky was ripped open so we could see things from God's view. Uh, what's happening in Jesus' baptism? What is this God's eye view of reality revealed to us? Well, John's already said that it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But of course, Jesus has nothing to repent of, right? He's got no sins to forgive. So what's he doing being baptized here? What seems to be happening here is that Jesus is identifying himself with those he's come to forgive and to save. He's sharing in their baptism, though he has no need of it himself, as a way of saying, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm here for exactly this, to share in this with you so that I might take it on myself and rescue you from your sins. What we see as the heavens are torn apart at this moment is that Jesus is not alone. The heavenly perspective on reality that we're given at this moment shows God the Father and God the Spirit ministering to God the Son. What we see here at this moment actually is the deepest reality that you can actually ever get your head around. What we see here is who God is in and of himself fundamentally. The most fundamental reality of the universe, the God who made everything, who underpins everything, he is Father, Son and Spirit. He's one God in three persons relating to one another in eternal, perfect love and harmony. This is the Trinity that we're speaking about. And as the curtain is drawn back to see these three as one, what is it that they're doing? You notice what's going on here, right? All three of them, the whole of the, of the Godhead, all perfectly united in one thing. What are they doing? They're bringing comfort to God's people. When we see ultimate reality, when we get this vision of the heavens torn open, just like when Galileo looked through his telescope, it changes everything. And what we see here is the God of the universe choosing to identify himself with us. The perfect, holy God getting down in the water with us messy human beings. This is ultimate reality. God, the Father, Son and Spirit united in love to rescue and redeem sinners like you and me. The one true and living God working together in power and love to bring comfort. There are some uh, things that are spoken in that moment, right? The, the words that the Father speaks to the Son are words that are taken from Psalm 2, a psalm which is all about the promised King, the Messiah, who God had promised that he would send to bring an end to all injustice, to rule the way that rulers are supposed to rule, to make the world the kind of place that God intended it to be. The Spirit descending on Jesus uh, is a reference to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 42, that God would send a servant and would put his Spirit on that servant. And his spirit would empower that servant to deliver his people from darkness. What we see here in this moment is that God the Father, Son and Spirit are united in the work of Jesus so that Jesus can be that promised king, so that Jesus can be the servant who would bring light in the darkness. Let's begin to focus in a little bit on the Spirit's particular role in this uh, as the, the topic of the, the series that we're embarking on. Uh, the Spirit we see here is the life-giving presence of God. And what that life-giving presence does here is to empower Jesus for his ministry. 
And we see that actually throughout Jesus' whole life. There's a particular moment of it here where the heavens are opened up so he can see the reality of what's going on. But actually the power of the Spirit is present with Jesus throughout his whole life and ministry. Uh, let me show you some places where the Spirit actually is at work. You can ask me for the references if you like to chase them up later on. Uh, Jesus, of course, is conceived by the Spirit in the womb of Mary. He's sent out to preach in the power of the Spirit. He offers himself for us on the cross by the power of the Spirit. And it's the power of the Spirit that is at work to raise him from the dead. At every moment of Jesus' life and work, the Spirit's power rests on him. And so here we see the deepest and truest reality of the universe, God the Trinity at work to comfort us. What we see is God the Father sending the Son among us and sending his Spirit to sustain his life and ministry. And notice what the very first thing is that happens here. In verse 12, what is it that the Spirit does as soon as we see this vision of him empowering Jesus for ministry? Have a look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. The first thing that the Spirit does as he breathes life and power into Jesus' ministry of comfort is to drive him into the wilderness. God's promised comfort in the wilderness, to bring us home from the wilderness. And how does he do that? By sending his son into the wilderness. The Lord's come to bring comfort to people lost in darkness. And he brings that comfort by entering into that darkness himself. Just as Jesus identifies with us in baptism, now he identifies with us by going into the wilderness places, by taking on that experience of life in a broken world, by facing Satan's temptations, the same temptations that you and I face every day. Jesus endures 40 days in the wilderness, just as Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. And the Spirit's work is to sustain him through that temptation that he faces there. And the thing, of course, that we see is that Jesus does what we couldn't do. He does what Israel couldn't do. And he does it in the power of the Spirit. So our first stake in the ground in response to our two questions is this. Uh, who is the Spirit? He's the one who gives life to the Son. And what is it that the Spirit does? Well, he's the life-giving presence of God who empowers Jesus for the work that the Father has given him. This is the first and fundamental work of the Spirit is to help Jesus, to empower Jesus to do what the Father has sent him to do, to go into the wilderness to bring us comfort. There you go, first thing. Jesus gives life to the Son. Uh, our second stake in the ground is that Jesus glorifies the Son. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit of the story about my, uh, my daughter Maggie and we'll see uh, how that helps us to think about Jesus glorifying the Son, uh, sorry, the Spirit glorifying the Son. Uh, Maggie at the moment is uh, obsessed with cake. She really is. She's two and a half, and at the moment, cake is just the thing that she loves most in the universe. Uh, one of my brothers, uh, Rowan, and his wife, Alana, and their son, Hudson, they live uh, in Oxford in the UK. Um, so we don't get to see them very often. Um, Maggie knows them and loves them. We were there early this year and spent some time hanging out with them. They sent us a photo recently uh, of uh, Hudson's first birthday party. Uh, of course, being a birthday party, there were cakes in the photo. We gave the photo to Maggie and said, who's in this photo? What does she say? First word out of her mouth, cake. Yes, yes, but Maggie, which people are in the photo? More cake. She's obsessed with cake at the moment. I walked into her bedroom a few weeks ago to find her sitting on the floor of her room with not one, but three picture books open. 
thinking to myself, she's been pretty quiet for a while, what's going on? It's a bit weird to have this many books open. I walked in and said, what are you doing? She said, cake. And there you go, she's got three different picture books all open to a page that have cakes on them. Uh, we are having a second kid uh, due in January, which we're very excited about, and uh, Alison and I were thinking, maybe we'll ask Maggie to help us name the kid, but we realised we can't do that because the kid will be called Cake. Right? At the moment, for Maggie, Cake is the answer to every question. It's the key to every situation that she faces in her life. She's just a little bit obsessed with Cake. Now, I don't want to draw this analogy too far, because we're talking about God himself here, right? We're talking about God the Spirit, the true and living God. So I don't want to, you know, draw this analogy too far. But you see, what we learn as we read, particularly in a moment from John's Gospel, is that just like Maggie is ferociously focused on cake, the Spirit is ferociously focused on Jesus. For the Spirit, Jesus is the answer to every question. For the Spirit, Jesus is the key to every situation that you might face. Now, let me show you what I mean. Have a look at John 16 with me that Elliot read for us before, uh, where Jesus outlines for us actually himself in his uh, own words, in his own teaching, John chapters 14 to 16, who the Spirit is and what he does. Now, have a look at me, uh, with me uh, at John 16 from verse 13. Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is it that Jesus says the Spirit will do? He will declare to you the things that Jesus himself has said and done. Now, back in uh, John chapter 14, uh, verse 26, Jesus talks about the same thing and he puts it slightly differently. Uh, he says, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. You see, what the Spirit does is speak about Jesus. The Spirit's work is to make Jesus real and present to you by reminding you of what Jesus has said and done so that you will know Jesus deeper and deeper in your heart. Just like Maggie's obsessed with cake, so the Holy Spirit is obsessed with Jesus. Uh, why does he do this? Why does this make sense? Why is this what the Spirit is, uh, is set on? Now, take a look with me at the beginning of verse 14 there. Jesus says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me. Uh, the Spirit's obsession is to see Jesus glorified, to see you see Jesus more clearly, to see your heart set more and more firmly on the Son. And of course, the reason for that is that as God seeks to comfort his people, Jesus is the centre of where that happens. And so that's where the Spirit wants to draw our attention. Now, God's promise of comfort in the wilderness in Isaiah 40 comes about through the glory of the Lord. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And the Spirit's work is to bring comfort to you by revealing to you the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus we see God's glory fully revealed. We see the eternal love of the Father, Son and Spirit for us made real and tangible as the Father sends his beloved Son to live with us in the wilderness, to be among us, to take us to be with the Father in the power of the Spirit. That's the glory of the Lord. That's the glory of God. And that's what the Spirit is all about. 
Uh, one author summarizes it like this. He says, the Holy Spirit is about one thing. He has one purpose. The key to the Holy Spirit is this, Jesus. This is the bit that I think is really particularly helpful. Uh, he says, the Spirit is about Jesus with intensity. The Spirit is about Jesus with intensity. He wants you to know Jesus better. He wants Jesus to be deeper and deeper in your heart. He wants your love for Jesus to grow. He is intense about Jesus. Uh, earlier in John's Gospel, uh, Jesus said that he's come that you may have life in abundance. The Spirit's work is to connect us to that life as the life-giving presence of God by drawing our hearts to the glory of God in Jesus. Uh, because the Spirit is so focused on Jesus, um, it's kind of true to say that the rest of our series is really just expanding on this one point, actually. Uh, it might be uh, uh, fair to say, in fact, that there's a real challenge for us in this series here, a challenge perhaps for those of us preaching, so keep us in your prayers, to talk about the Spirit in a way that glorifies Jesus, not to focus on the Spirit in such a way that actually Jesus is crowded out of the picture. That would be to do exactly what the Spirit is not on about. Uh, so here's where we're going to go over the coming weeks in this series. I'll give you a little bit of a, of a preview, and, and I, I want you to see actually how all of these things in the end are about Jesus. Uh, next week we're going to hear about the Spirit in me, uh, God's life-giving presence for transformation in holiness. That, of course, in the end means living like Jesus. The following week we'll hear about the Spirit in us, God's life-giving presence for building the body, for growing the church. Uh, that is, if you like, for loving like Jesus. The final week of our series, we'll hear about the Spirit in the world, God's life-giving presence for completing God's work. Uh, that is, in the end, for witnessing to Jesus. Living like Jesus, loving like Jesus, witnessing to Jesus. This is the work that the Spirit does in us. The Spirit speaks about Jesus. The Spirit is about Jesus with intensity. Now, there are two things especially, I think, to take away from this. Uh, firstly, it's important to make sure and make clear that the Spirit isn't some kind of additional extra that you get on top of Jesus. The Spirit's job is to make Jesus real to us, to conform our hearts and our lives more and more to him, to deepen our love and knowledge of him. It's not as though you get Jesus and that's great, but then you get the Spirit as an extra thing. His job is to make Jesus real to you in the first place and more and more so. Uh, that means that any so-called spirituality or so-called spiritual gift that doesn't conform to Jesus, that doesn't point to Jesus, that doesn't grow your heart in love for Jesus, is not from the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's focus is Jesus. Uh, another Christian author puts it like this. He says, there's a way of concentrating upon the Holy Spirit that is grieving to the Spirit, because he's come not to draw our attention to himself, but to forge our relationship to the Father and the Son, a spirit who offers us experience of himself and his gifts as the central focus of our Christian lives is not the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. That's the first thing to take away from this teaching about the Spirit glorifying the Son, that the Spirit isn't an additional thing, the Spirit actually draws you to Jesus. Uh, secondly, uh, relatedly, but a little bit differently, uh, we need to take away from what Jesus teaches us here a very simple truth, which is that if you love Jesus, you have the Spirit. I think sometimes it's easy for us to worry about whether or not we do actually have the Spirit, whether the Spirit's really working in us, whether he's really present with us. But if the Spirit's work is to draw your hearts to Jesus, then if you love Jesus, you have the Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, No one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Let Jesus be cursed. 
And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is the work that the Spirit does. He glorifies Jesus in you by reminding you and teaching you about Jesus. So if you love Jesus, you have the Spirit. What does the Spirit's work in you look like? What does it look like for the Spirit to do this in your heart and in your life? Well, we're going to see more of that in the next three weeks uh, with some more detail, and perhaps especially next week as we hear about the Spirit in me, in you and I as individuals. Uh, But here's a bit of a big picture, because it would be uh, pretty terrible to go away from this tonight without any sense of how this actually works out for you in your life. Uh, Here are some ways in which you can see the Spirit at work in you. When you're tempted and you remember that Jesus died and was raised to free from sin and you choose obedience even though it's hard because that's what Jesus calls you to, the Spirit is doing his work in you. When you're lonely and you remember that Jesus has promised to be with you and near you always, the Spirit is doing his work in you. When things are going well for you and you remember that Jesus has promised life in abundance and your heart is full of thanks and joy and praise to him, the Spirit is doing his work in you. When you're feeling guilty and weighed down about some sin in your life and you remember that Jesus loves you despite your mess and that he's working in you to change you, the Spirit is doing his work in you. When you see a friend struggling and you remember what it looked like for Jesus to give himself up for his friends and you joyfully sacrifice to love and care, the Spirit is doing his work in you. When a colleague tells you about some sadness in their life, And you instinctively talk about the comfort that Jesus brings you. The Spirit is doing his work in you. When you're finding yourself in the wilderness and you can't see your way home, but you find yourself crying out to Jesus, the Spirit is doing his work in you. That's what it looks like for the Spirit to do his work, to draw you to Jesus, to comfort you. And so that's our second stake in the ground. The Spirit glorifies the Son. There's one final thing uh, that we need to recognise as we think about uh, this last point here. The Spirit comforts the friends of the Son. Uh, The thing we've got to recognise, the only way that this all makes sense actually in the end, is that the Spirit is a person. Sometimes I think it's very easy for us to slip into thinking that the Spirit isn't really a person who can be known, isn't a personal presence. It's easy to imagine instead that the Spirit's a little bit like the force. Uh, Some kind of uh, impersonal... Oh. There we go, some Yoda. Um, some kind of like impersonal life principle, right? That, if, that you can just kind of tap into and if you like a Jedi can tap into the life force of the universe, then you can have a better life and you can manipulate things and you can fight bad people, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's easy for us to think sometimes, I think, that the spirit is some kind of principle at work in the universe that we can just tap into. On the other hand, we can imagine sometimes that the spirit is like some kind of magic potion, Uh, If we can just work out the formula, if we can just get enough of it into us, then maybe we'll change, then maybe life will start to look different and better. Some kind of magic potion that you can have perhaps even more or less of, be more more spirity and less spirity. But you see, neither of these things are what God has promised to us. That's not what the Spirit is. That's not who the Spirit is. God has promised to come to his people in person to comfort them in the wilderness. When he arrives, the heavens are torn open to reveal the deep reality of the universe, the God of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, identifying with broken humanity and drawing near to us to comfort and heal. 
What we see Jesus do in John 14 to 16 uh, is give a name to the Holy Spirit that places him as a person right at the very heart of the comfort that God brings. Uh, in the English Bibles that we have here, uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Advocate. So chapter 14, verse 16, for example, uh, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another Advocate to be with you forever. Uh, the English word Advocate translates uh, a rich and deep Greek word, uh, the word parakletos. Uh, there isn't really one English word that captures fully what parakletos means. So different translations often use different words. Sometimes it's translated advocate, sometimes it's translated counsellor or helper. Some translations actually just go, it's too hard to work out which one to use, so we're just going to say paraclete, which is just turning Greek letters into English letters and hoping that no one notices that it's not a real word. Uh, the general meaning of this word, parakletos, seems to be someone who helps a person in their need. Uh, a variation of the same Greek word actually appears in the Greek version of Isaiah 40. It's the word that we hear there translated as comfort. And so some English translations quite rightly go with the translation of this word parakletos as the comforter. It makes perfect sense. Jesus says, I will send you a comforter. It makes perfect sense because the words that we have recorded here in this part of John are spoken by Jesus the night before he died to a completely frazzled group of his closest friends. His disciples are freaking out because things are going down big time in Jerusalem and it's not looking good for Jesus, who they love. Jesus is saying all this stuff about leaving them. Throughout these chapters, Jesus refers to the disciples as troubled, as afraid, as full of sorrow in their hearts, as unable to bear what he has to say to them. They're in the wilderness. And what Jesus promises to them in the wilderness isn't some kind of life force, isn't advice, isn't a concept. He doesn't just hold out to them comfort, but he holds out to them the comforter. He doesn't just give them words, he gives them a person. And it's clear that Jesus knows the Spirit as a person. He never once refers to the Spirit as it. He always refers to the Spirit as he. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see the Spirit actively engaging with God's people. He suggests things to people. He sends people. He speaks. He's grieved when God's people sin. Jesus has gone to be with the Father, but he hasn't left us alone. He's present with us personally. The only way that's possible is if the Spirit is a person. I wonder if you can just get your heads around for a moment just how important it is that the Spirit isn't an idea or a concept. That he isn't just some kind of life force or principle or like a potion that you need some more of. Because in the end, what good are those when you're stuck in the wilderness? When you're lonely and lost, when you're confused and thirsty and don't know how to find your way home, how much comfort can those things really give? No, what you need is presence. What you need is someone to draw alongside you. What you need is to be personally connected to God, to draw near to the love that lies at the centre of reality. Now, here again is how another author puts this. Uh, when God gives us the Holy Spirit, he doesn't give us a thing. He gives us himself. If God were just a power, then when he saves us, he would give us power that could be lost or could be topped up. But because the Spirit is a person, God gives us his very self. So we can never have half the Spirit or need more of him because he is a person. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, God says. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. 
Well, we know we've seen that the Lord has come, that his glory has been revealed in Jesus. And he comforts us by being present with us in the person of the comforter. Earlier in John's gospel, John makes this promise. He says, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. This is the promise that Jesus gives, that the God of love will draw near to us in the wilderness and bring us home. How do the Father and the Son make their home with us? We've seen it already in Mark chapter 1. The Spirit drives the Son into the wilderness. He drives the Son into temptation to face Satan on our behalf. He drives the Son into the wilderness of a world where he experiences rejection by family, betrayal by his friends. He drives the Son into the wilderness of death. The Spirit drives the Son into the wilderness that we deserve, into the wilderness where so often we find ourselves so that with him in the wilderness with us, we might find our way home with his Father. Who's the Holy Spirit? He's the life-giving presence of God to bring you home to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You might feel like you're in the wilderness right now. Uh, If you're not in the wilderness right now, of course, you're sure to be sometime soon. That's the way life in this world works as we wait for the Lord's return. And so here's what the Spirit the comforter says to you today he says jesus is near you he will never leave you he will never give up on you he will always bring you home this is the spirit who we confess this is the god of love who's drawn near to us in jesus we have a home with him amen